ask for cleansing. We ask, Lord, that you would speak this morning. We pray that you would open up these, these ears and these eyes and these minds and these hearts that are oftentimes hard. We pray that you would help us be the people that you have called us to be, not the people this world wants us to be. We pray for this time in your word to be rich and deep, that your spirit would speak to each person, each one of us individually right where we are. Father, for any who've been away from you, may you call them back with your sweet voice. We pray for those who may not know you as their savior, that they would understand that every one of their sins can be forgiven. By grace and grace alone, you will do that. And Father, I pray that you would lead me, that you would guide me, that your hand of favor and blessing would be upon me as I preach your holy word. I do not handle your word lightly. And I pray that with a seriousness and with a passion, I would proclaim it freely now. And Father, just do what only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Shug Avery grew up in a godly home. She grew up in the church where she used to use her voice to sing praises to God. At some point in her life, she walked away from the Lord and walked away from church. Those God-given gifts and talents she is now using at the bar down the road where she's a popular cocktail singer. It's Sunday, and the choir starts to sing, and the sound of their praise carries down the road and across the pond, and that praise makes its way into the ears and heart of that prodigal child. I want you to watch this scene from the movie, The Color Purple.
for some of you this morning, God is trying to tell you something. You've walked away from him. You've been gone a long time. For some of you, you're hurting. No one else sees it, but on the inside, you're hurting. You've messed up. You messed up this past week. And it's time to come home. For some of you, you've not been using your gifts. You've not been using your talents for the Lord and for his kingdom. You've been wasting your life and wasting your talent and wasting your money and wasting your time. And you've been chasing the pleasures of this world. And it's been leaving you empty. It's time to come home. For others, you're hurting because of your wayward decisions. And they've taken a toll. And they've taken a toll on your family. And they've taken a toll on your marriage. And they've taken a toll on your children. And the regrets, they weigh heavy on your heart. And it's time to come home. Some of you here, you're being tempted to walk away. To walk away from God and walk away from church and walk away from spiritual things. Just to pick up and leave and distance yourself from everything and everyone and to do whatever you want. And God is trying to tell you something. And God is going to speak. And he's going to do it through his word. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And we're going to see what God is trying to tell us. By way of context, the Lord is speaking to a group of people. The people that he's speaking to is a group of self-righteous, critical, hypocritical, legalistic religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, who are holier than everybody else in their own eyes, looking down their noses at everybody else. And this group of religious leaders are very upset with Jesus because he is stooping so low as to fellowship and spend time and eat with sinners, people who have strayed away from God. And the Lord shares a parable, a story, about a lost son, about a prodigal son. It's time to come home. Verse 11, follow along as I read Luke 15. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be, in, be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the paws that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, 
felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, and, he, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy. Be called your son. The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. God is trying to tell you something. The first thing he's trying to tell us is that more money and distance and freedom won't satisfy. It's just not going to do it for you. You got two boys here. They're in the same home, they have the same father, but they're very different kids. The younger one, the younger one is the one we're looking at here. Now, this is not a judgment against the youngest in the family, although they are the spoiled ones and they do get whatever they want. I know, I was the oldest, I saw it, but I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. The younger one has big plans. Look at these big plans. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. His big plans are very selfish plans. Hey, pops, show me the money. Show me the money now. I want my inheritance now. Greedy, impatient, arrogant, short-sighted. Selfish plans, very insensitive plans. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Talk about ripping your father's heart out. You realize what this son is saying? All I really care about is your money, dad. As far as I'm concerned, I wish you were dead because I want your inheritance. Money is more important to me than a relationship with you. That's what he's saying. Warren Wearsby said it well. He said, we're heading for trouble when we value things more than people, pleasure more than duty, and distant scenes more than the blessings we have right at home. His dad does it, though. Why? Was this typical? The Jewish Mishnah, the interpretation of the law, allowed a father to settle his estate while he was still alive, but only with the father's initiative. The disbursement would happen, but the son would not be allowed to sell anything because the father still had rights to it to support him. So not only was this son saying, Dad, you're better off dead to me, he's also risking his father's financial future and his father's financial stability. Proverbs 19.13, a foolish son is destruction to his father. Incredibly selfish plans and horribly insensitive plans, but wonderfully exciting plans. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathers everything together and goes on a journey to a distant country. He wastes no time fulfilling his dreams. He takes the money and he runs and he puts as much distance as possible between himself and his family because he finally has his freedom to live his own life and do whatever he wants when he wants to. Talk about a recipe for disaster. Be careful when you got some extra money and no accountability and no boundaries. Oh, be very careful. When you have some extra money, cash on hand, money to burn, maybe a bonus, a gift comes in. No accountability. There's no family around, no friends, no support system. No boundaries. You're free to be yourself and do what you want, when you want, and no one will ever 
know about it. That's a recipe for disaster. By the way, if you've been struggling in your own life, we have a great ministry in our church called Celebrate Recovery. It helps those with hurts and habits and hang-ups. And I'd encourage you to find help with that group. And we have information in the foyer on Celebrate Recovery. This younger, brother, this younger son moves out and he moves on. And I doubt he shed a single tear. He's going to live it up. Sadly, the parents of prodigals have shed many a tear, and some of you here know what that's like. All too familiar, some of you, with prodigal pain. Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. A foolish son, Proverbs 17.25, is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Would you stop hurting your parents so deeply and come home? There's no stopping this boy, though. He goes on his journey to a distant country, and maybe the hardest thing somebody, a parent, would ever have to do is to let the prodigal go and to watch that prodigal walk out of your life. They're focused on the far and away. Proverbs 17, 24, the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. They don't care about what's, what's here at home. The excitement is always out there somewhere else. The eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. And they're going to do whatever they want to do. Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. And there's no stopping him. They just won't listen. You can talk and you can reason and you can try to convince them till you're blue in the face and they've already made up their mind. Proverbs 12, 15, because the way of a fool is what? It's right. It's right in his own eyes. Proverbs 26, 12, you see a man who is wise in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Kind of like the sluggard of Proverbs 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. In other words, the prodigals are know-it-alls. You can't teach them anything. They've got it all figured out. God is trying to tell you something. More money, more distance, more freedom is not going to satisfy. God is trying to tell you something else. Prodigal plans always end in pain. Say that with me. Prodigal plans always end in pain. Even though they're the perfect plans. Oh, we got it figured out. This is going to work out. This is perfect. Prodigal plans always end in pain. Verse 14. He, verse 13, the end of it, he squanders his estate with loose living and he spends everything and then a severe famine occurs in the country and he becomes impoverished and he ends up feeding swine in the field and no one's helping him out at all. When are we going to learn that when it comes to plans, Proverbs 16, 3, that we must commit our works to the Lord and then our plans will be established. You better put God in your plans or your plans are going to end in pain. Get that. You better make sure God are in your big, great plans. 
Because if God is not in your plan for your business and God is not in your plan for that marriage and God is not in plan in the plan for whatever it is, your plan is going to end in pain. It's going to. It's just a matter of time. When are we going to learn? Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Living on impulse will just bring impoverished living. Just, just going on the emotions and how you feel and let's do it. You're in trouble. And some of you, that's how you live your life. On impulse. He squanders everything, his entire estate with loose living. He wastes it all. All the money is gone. Think about the time he has wasted and the energy he's wasted and the resources he has wasted. He certainly has lived up to his name, prodigal, which means reckless, which means wasteful. Loose living, maybe it's gambling, maybe it's some indulgence with food or drink, or maybe it's buying things, you know, toys, more toys. The older brother later in the passage in verse 30 will say he's devoured his wealth with prostitutes. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's a combination of all those things. For the temptation of the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is always there from the enemy to woo us. He squanders everything. He spends everything. Verse 14 Everything is gone. He's burned right through his money. There's no self-control, only self-indulgence. Proverb chapter 20, verse 21 has a lot to say about an inheritance. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Certainly not, because they will burn right through it. Squanders everything, spends everything, saves nothing. He never thought long-term. It never occurred to him to save for a rainy day. He never thought about preparing for an emergency, like, like just maybe a car will break down, a chariot in his case. You know, maybe a, a, a house repair or replace an appliance or some kind of health concern. I, I'm convinced that the prodigal was an American. He had to be. He didn't save a dime. It was spend, 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 and max out all the credit cards. You got to stop living for the moment. You got to stop living on impulse, and you better start saving for the future. Wall Street Journal articles stated that 26% of Americans have no savings whatsoever. Zero. 26%, possibly in this room, don't have a dime in savings. 40% have maybe enough for three months of expenses. The minimum recommendation is three to six months to have set aside. Dave Ramsey and others teach that. Why? Why save, though? Because you do not know what the future holds. That's why. Things can go from bad to worse really fast. Verse 14, it's after he spends everything, then the severe famine occurs. He began to be impoverished. So so the economy collapses. It tanks. Major recession hits. He just assumed everything would always be the same. And he was never prepared for any emergencies. Are you prepared? You lose your job. Tomorrow morning when you go in, you are fired. The business closes. Are you prepared? Poverty sets in. He goes from riches to rags. 
It's amazing how our financial future can change overnight from not a care in the world to how in the world am I going to make it? Just like that. The Scottish poet Robert Burns put it this way in 1786 after plowing a field and overturning a mouse nest. The best laid schemes of mice and men often go awry and leave us naught but grief and pain for promised joy. You do not know what's going to happen. Prepare for the unexpected. Now, the prodigal solution is a good one. Verse 15, he's going to get a job like the rest of the world. That's a great idea. He's actually going to work. So he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Here's the sad truth. He was forced to do for a stranger what he wouldn't do for his own father. He wasn't going to work for dad. So now he's forced to do for a stranger what he wouldn't do for his own father. He hires himself out to one of the citizens of the country. Now, as a matter of fact, that, that's a good thing to work. And by the way, I want you to understand God's idea when it comes to welfare, and it's not politically correct. Second Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to what? Eat either. That's God's idea of welfare. You're not willing to work, then fine, go hungry. And by the way, it's good to be hungry. Proverbs 16, 26, because a worker's appetite works for him and his hunger urges him on. You never subsidize the lazy. You let them go hungry so that they get off their backside and get to work. This man gets it. He says, oh, I better, I better get to work or I'm not going to eat. And it was humbling work. He sent into the fields to feed swine. Nothing like a kosher Jewish boy working with pigs. Hmm? He was desperate. Any job was better than no job. But the job wasn't meeting his needs. And the job wasn't making ends meet. Because verse 16 tells us he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything to eat. This guy is hungry and this boy is desperate. His stomach is growling and he's thinking about the fancy dinners that he used to buy. And he's thinking about the the home-cooked meals with his family that he used to enjoy. Here's the paradox, one of them, of the prodigal. He goes from living high on the hog to coveting pig food. Not a good situation. And no one cares. It says, and no one was giving him anything. Nothing. He had no family to help. He had abandoned them to chase his dreams. He had no friends who seemed to care. But what about all of his newfound friends? You find out real, real fast who your real friends are when you lose everything. And you got plenty of friends when you have money to spend. You got to understand that. When you have money to spend, everybody is your friend. Proverbs 19.6. Many will seek the favor of a generous man. Every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. So the boy who was going to make it in the world has become the boy who has lost himself in this world. God is trying to tell you something. More money and distance and freedom will not satisfy and prodigal plans always end in pain and God is trying to tell us something. Come to your senses and swallow your pride. And that's what happens to this young man. 
verse 17. He comes to his senses and says, wait a minute. How many of my friends have, my father have hired men who have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger? He's saying, what am I doing here? This self-revelation, this light bulb that finally goes on. And sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom to knock some common sense into us. So it's okay to hit rock bottom sometimes because that's when God finally gets your attention. And some of you are are close and some of you are there. And God's finally starting to get your attention. And this guy realizes, oh, you know what? Home wasn't that bad after all. And now he has a renewed appreciation for his dad. As a matter of fact, now he can't get dad off of his mind. Father is mentioned four times from verse 17 to verse 20. How many of my father's hired men? Verse 18, and go to my father. And verse 18 again, father, I've sinned. And I'm going to get up, verse 20, and go to my father. So all of a sudden, his dad isn't that bad after all. You know, my dad has been kind, and my dad was fair. My dad is generous. And this is the same dad that he couldn't wait to get away from. And the same dad he probably criticized and made fun of. And the same dad he basically wished was dead. It was Mark Twain who said, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have an old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in just seven years. (laughs) The funny thing is, dad didn't change a bit the boy finally started growing up and becoming a man. Some of us here this morning need a renewed appreciation for our Heavenly Father. You know, God and His Word is not really that bad after all. You know, God really does know what He's talking about. You know, God's Word is filled with wisdom. Why didn't I follow it in the first place? You know, my Heavenly Father really is fair and kind, and generous, and gracious, and loving. You know, that realization draws us back when we really see the character of God. Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God, what does it do? It leads us to repentance. When we finally realize how kind God is, It works in our hearts, and it leads us to repentance. But for some of us, it takes suffering, because suffering opens our minds and opens our eyes to the truth. And sadly, oftentimes, it's one of the few things that that can only get our attention. The other thing that that happens with suffering, though, is that there is so much needless suffering in our lives when we walk away from God. There's so much needless suffering we didn't have to face when we turn our back on God. Don't walk away from him. You'll face so much needless suffering. Don't turn your back on God and his word. You'll go through so much needless pain and suffering. This man decides, I'm going home. I'm going to humble myself. Look at verse 18. I I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he takes personal responsibility. That's what prodigals need to do. They need to take personal responsibility. I will get up. I will go. I will say, I have sinned. 
And he goes quickly. He's going to get up and go, and he's going to act humbly. He's going to admit that he's wrong and admit that he's been a fool and admit that he's the one that has failed. And he's going to confess personally, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. No excuses. He's recognizing and admitting that he has sinned against God. He's recognizing and admitting that he has sinned against his dad. Some of you need to recognize and admit your sin this morning. That you've sinned against God. And that you've sinned against other people. And and he does it without any blaming. He doesn't blame his dad for not giving him enough money. He, He doesn't blame the boss for not promoting him to a better job to take care of his needs. He doesn't blame God for the famine that came along the, uh, around the land. See, see, some of us here this morning, we, we want to blame our dad and blame our mom and blame our brother and blame our sister and we want to blame our boss because it's all our boss's fault. And we want to we blame God because of the circumstances that happen and the health problems we're having and we just want to blame everybody except ourselves. Prodigals love to blame everybody else. And this man finally breaks and realizes, I gotta stop blaming other people. And I need to start blaming myself. And some of you here this morning need to do the same. You need to stop blaming everybody else. And you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. And you better start looking up to God and you better start blaming yourself for the decisions you made, for the actions you took, for the disobedience you chose. You chose not to go God's way. You chose not to listen to God's word. You chose to do that. Nobody forced it upon you. And you finally need to say, it's my fault and no one else's. He accepts completely the consequences of his actions. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He says, I'm willing to accept loss of sonship. Boy, a big change has taken place in this man's head and heart. He's broken. He's no longer demanding. He's no longer knows-it-all. He's no longer selfish and pleasure-seeking. Before, he was ungrateful for all that he had, and he wanted more. Now he's undeserving because of what he's done, and he's willing to serve. He's changed. No more claiming my rights. Now he's willing to give up any and all rights. He's changed. He's willing to accept the lowest position, just one of your hired men, from from being too good for everybody else to not worthy for anything else. He's changed. God is trying to tell you something. More money and distance and freedom won't satisfy, and prodigal plans always end in pain, and come to your senses. Swallow your pride. God is trying to tell us something, that you will be loved and forgiven and what? And welcomed home. What a picture. Look at verse 20. While they're still a long way off, he's still a long way off. 
His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I mean, wow, look at, look at the compassion here. This guy is still a ways down the road. He's not quite to the house, but maybe it's in sight. And he's making his way back from this far country. And then we see this compassion in action. His dad sees him. And I want you to understand, he doesn't turn his gaze away in disgust. He's been hoping for this day. He's been praying for this day. He's been waiting for this day. And he feels compassion, not anger, not disgust, not shame, not dis- even disappointment. And he runs. He doesn't run away from his son. He doesn't say, lock the door and bolt the windows. That kid's back. He's after more. It's not what he says. He takes off running toward him, initiating the affection. And I want you to understand this. This is the only place in all of Scripture we see God run. God actually runs. And he runs toward his wayward child, making his way home. This incredible picture of love. Do you realize God is running toward you this morning, who, you who've been away from him? He's running toward you saying, I'm so glad to see you in church this morning. I'm so glad you're sitting under my word. I'm so glad you're hearing songs of praise. I'm so glad. And he embraces him. He doesn't scorn him or shun him. Literally, it means he falls on his neck and just holds on to him. In that video clip we saw of the pastor with his daughter who had returned. It took a moment for that pastor, that dad, to hug his wayward daughter. I want you to understand there's no hesitation with God. There's no hesitation with God. He welcomes you right back. Overwhelming love and joy for his child to be home. God has missed you. God misses his children. And by the way, he doesn't hold your past against you. He just wraps his arms around you. I love this picture of the prodigal being embraced by the father. He's home. He's home. So what does the boy do? The boy follows through with the confession. Look at verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, this is after receiving the father's love. He could have backed off and not offered the confession since he had seen that he was accepted. But he still goes through with the confession. So he goes from, Father, give me, to Father, forgive me. What a big difference. And he has granted restoration. Look at verse 22. The father's response, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring out the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. Now there's nonverbal restoration. The father doesn't speak a word to the son. He doesn't say, I forgive you, I love you, I this. It's actions of acceptance. He gives the son more than empty words. He shows it. That's how you treat a prodigal who's returned. You just don't say it. You show it. It was immediate restoration. Quickly do these things. And I want you to understand what all of these things point to is the father is restoring the dignity of his son. He's building him up and lifting him up and tangibly showing his love. And I want you to notice here, he doesn't question him. 
Well, where have you been? And what did you do? And what did you spend that money on? I want you to understand we don't need the gory details when people are repentant. We don't need the gory details and we don't want the gory details. We want to open our arms wide and receive them just like God receives us with open arms. He says, bring the best robe, not just a robe, the best one, and put a ring on. The ring may contain the family seal, showing restoration to the family. You're part of this family. Put sandals on on his feet. We're assuming he's barefoot and destitute. He's restoring honor here. And everything that he hoped he'd find in the world, he finds so much more at home. The world can't offer what only God offers. The world is full of cheap, junk substitutes. The world cannot offer you what only your heavenly Father can offer you. And then he says, let's, let's feast. Bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. Bring it, kill it, eat it. Special calf for a special occasion. They're going to celebrate. And this boy hasn't eaten like this in a long time. Why the celebration? For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He, has, he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. He claims him as his own. This son of mine. He says, this is my son. And he recognizes the transformation. He was dead. He's alive. He's changed. He was lost. He's found. He's changed. God has brought him back to life. And he says, let's celebrate. I want you to understand, when a prodigal returns, you celebrate. You do not condemn. You celebrate. And I want you to understand that we will celebrate with you. That God loves you. That God forgives you. That this church accepts you. No matter where you've been, no matter what sins you have committed, no matter how far into this world you have strayed. Welcome home. God is trying to tell you something. Let's say it together. More money and distance and freedom won't satisfy. Prodigal plans always end in pain. Come to your senses and swallow your pride, and you will be loved, forgiven, and welcomed home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible picture of grace and mercy and love. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just want you to talk to the Lord right now. You who know him already as your savior. For some of you, you've been away from God for a long time, maybe for one day. There is sin in your heart that needs to be confessed. Take a moment right now and confess that to God. For others, you know of a prodigal who has returned and you still want to hold things against them. 
when even God does not hold anything against him. Open up your arms as your heavenly Father has opened up his arms to you. For some of you here this morning, you've never come to know the Lord as your Savior. You've been living your life out in this world and it's leaving you empty. And you're sick and tired of the sin and you're sick and tired of the shame and the guilt. And you need forgiveness. And I want you to know that God offers it to you freely. There's nothing you and I can do to save us from our sins. The Lord Jesus did that on the cross. And you may say, Scott, what do I do? I want God in my life. With your head bowed right now and in the quietness of your heart, I just want to ask you to call out to God right now. Call out to him with words of faith like these. Lord Jesus, I have been a foolish man or a foolish woman. I am a wicked sinner. And I am sorry. Please forgive me for all my sin. Please save me from all my sin. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying the price for me. I place my faith in you, Lord, to save me. I can't save myself. Please save me, I pray. In Jesus' name. If you've called out to the Lord this morning, we would love to talk to you about that decision of faith that you've made and just encourage you in a life of faith with the Lord. But we'd love for you to let us know that you've done that. And uh, one way you can do that is if you open up your bulletin that you were given this morning, there's just a little tear-off section in there and just write your name on there and mark one of those boxes. Let us know that you've made a decision for Jesus Christ. And you can hand that to an usher or hand that to me or one of our guys.